Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Thanks to funding from the European Cultural Foundation. I'm embarking on a series of conversations exploring queer Black solidarity across Europe during the COVID-19 crisis. As COVID-19 continues to disproportionately impact Black people and communities of color across the globe, these conversations will focus on how marginalized, othered, and vulnerable communities are coming together in solidarity to share their stories, cultures, and acts of protest and resistance. Thank you to the European Cultural Foundation for investing in these stories. Today, I'm in conversation with Liz Fichetti, the director of the Institute of Race Relations and head of its European research program. She has worked for the Institute since 1982 and specializes in contemporary racism, refugee rights, far-right extremism, and Islamophobia across Europe. She is advisory editor of the Institute's journal, Race and Class, and is the author of A Suitable Enemy, Racism, Migration, and Islamophobia in Europe, and Europe's Fault Lines, Racism, and the Rise of the Right. We discuss her nearly 40 years working for the UK's leading race relations educational charity, her mentorship under the late and great Asa Vinandan, and how the anti-racism movement here in the UK has changed since the 1980s. Importantly, she provides some necessary historical and socio-political context for this current moment, including how the rise of the far right in Europe over the last 30 years has made our communities more vulnerable to COVID-19 today. Liz is also Busy Being Black's first white guest. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Liz Fichetti. Um, Liz, thank you so much for making time for me and for busy being black. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. And this is kind of a big deal, actually, because you are officially the first white person to come on Busy Being Black. <laughs> How does that feel? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, gosh. That, that's, uh, you, you, you put the pressure on me, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, um, I, I was telling a friend yesterday that, about this, that I'm you know, in conversation with you for the show and, and for this um this particular series with the European Cultural Foundation, they went, Liz Fichetti, no, she's an elite white. <laughs> so I don't know how that makes oh you feel. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, they were oh. very, they were very oh, excited. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so um, you have, um, I'm going to open with a question that I really come to love and which I, has become increasingly appropriate for the time that we're living in. How's your heart? My heart? Well, that's a lovely, a lovely question because um, I think in the struggle we often forget about the heart. Uh, we're always so busy. 
busy forgetting about the heart. <laughs> um, so I think I would say at the moment, if I was to be very, very honest, uh, my heart is quite tired, but it's also uh, very determined. And I would characterize it as a deja vu heart. And uh, paradoxically, I think deja vu, it means the heart that is thinking, my goodness, this heart has been here before so many times. And it has a sense of deja vu, which is actually a good thing, uh, because if the heart is telling you that, you know, you've been through this before, or we've been through this before, it's also telling you that there is um, a certain amount of knowledge uh, buried in your heart that you can bring uh, at this moment. So I think I'm tired, um, and this is obviously something we're going to talk about in this interview, because... I feel a strong sense that many of the things that we're seeing around us in terms of racism are exactly the same things that we faced uh, in the 1980s, which was a formative experience for me as a white woman involved in anti-racist and anti-fascist struggles. So it's kind of, oh, goodness me, you know, it was 1980 and now we're in, what, 2020 and we're fighting the same things. So that's very, very tiring. But at the same time, as I said before, because it's a deja vu for heart, we know, well, you know, we got through a, a bad period before so we can get through it again. I mean, you started at the Institute of Race Relations 30 years ago. Is that right? I think it was a bit more than that. I'm not very good wow. at maths, Josh. Uh, I think I came <laughs> at 1981. Quick, quick, do do it for me. How many years is that? Well, I don't, I'm not good at math either. I, well, think I, was, I think we're talking near a 40. Yeah, that's, oh my God, that's right. Um, I'm also not very good at mental math. Um, and so how would you, can you take us back to the beginning of your journey with the Institute? Uh, sure. Um, how long have you got? <laughs> um, so um, around 1981, I had just finished Polytechnic. In those days, um, the, the education system uh, was split between universities and polytechnics. And I went to a polytechnic, which was uh, in Middlesex, which is now Middlesex University. And while I was at university, there was, um, I think it was one of the first sort of struggles around overseas fees for um, overseas students. And I met somebody who was the, um, he was the, uh, and, uh, the student leader and he was organizing the, the occupation and the issues. And I got um, involved with him romantically. And he was very much connected to the Institute and he took me to the Institute. And they were looking for volunteers at the time. They were bringing out two education pamphlets on the roots and patterns of racism, which uh, I'd like to flag up here because when we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum now, um, we can also see that we're part of a long fight. In the 1980s, people were also fighting to decolonize the curriculum. They might have not 
use the same expression, we might have anti-racist education. So we did these two pamphlets for young people, Roots and Patterns of Racism, which are actually enjoying a massive revival at the moment. We're getting so many orders from teachers saying that these are the best books on the subject. So anyway, um, I was a very fast typist. I learned to type when I was 10 years old. My mum bought me uh, one of these Teach Yourself books and we had... Um, uh, well, you know, we didn't have what we have today. It was just an old-fashioned manual typewriter. And I learned to touch type when I was 10. So I was a really good typist. I wasn't much good at anything else, but I was good at typing. So I typed up the educational booklets. That was my first job as a volunteer. And then um, I think they just couldn't get rid of me. And, uh, you know, it was... Uh, going to be quite sort of uh, emotional interview I think and I know you're going to ask me um, some questions about Sivanandam um, later but this sort of came up uh, later with one of my colleagues so apparently he sort of took everybody into that room in a, uh, in a room and said you know I think there's something in that young woman I think we should employ her and then one of my friends you know, became a friend later said, well, I'm not sure she's a bit flighty <laughs> because I was very scatty in those days and I'm still very scatty as my colleagues will tell you. Um, one of my colleagues is I'm always saying, where are my glasses? And she'll say they're on your head or something like that. So, um, so yeah. Um, so uh, Sivanandan had some sort of belief and some sort of faith in me and I got a job. And um, one of my first uh, jobs within the institute was, it was, say it was 1981, there were major uprisings uh, in this country in 1981 and 1985. Policing of black communities, black and Asian communities, multicultural communities was a huge issue. Police brutality was a huge issue. Um, we talk about racial profiling now, but what we would be talking then is about the targeting of the black communities for colonial style of policing and the first job I did was producing a little bulletin on policing on London where I did roundups of all the cases going on around London and then I worked as a young researcher on a book we brought out called Policing Against Black People which uh, brought together hundreds of cases around uh, the targeting of black meeting places, uh, you know, everybody knows now about the mangrove, but there were many more and more cases. Targeting of black youth centres, we have now, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, really bad attack on the forefront project um, in West London, uh, uh, where several youth workers were arrested. Uh, that was going on in the 1980s, but we also looked at the policing of racial violence, we looked at the policing of immigration. We talked about SUS1 and SUS2. SUS1 was, you know, the whole way that young black Caribbean boys uh, in particular were treated as suspicion of being muggers or rapists just because they were going out at night. And in the Asian community, it was suspicion of being illegal immigrants that led to them being targeted. So that's how it all started, Josh. And now I'm an elite white. <laughs> <laughs> and and what was that like for you? I mean, you were quite an impassioned, and it, well, as you say, and also scatty. Um, it was as an anti-imperialist and anti-fascist, right? When you kind of started this work at the at the institute, I was separately involved um, in the anti-fascist movement. So. Um, there was a group founded called Anti-Fascist Action, 
uh, and I was um, one of the people who were, was involved in that, that from the beginning. I was also very much involved in struggles around East London, around racial violence, the policing of racial violence. You know, around, uh, you know, in the early 1980s, there was the first school strike of young Asian children against racial violence in Newham. Um, and there were big demonstrations. So I was involved in that. So, Josh, what was the question again? I told you. I was no, you, you know, you, it wasn't really a question. It was more of a statement that you started um, kind of in, in the anti-fascism space and then moved into, um, you know, anti-racist work with the Institute. Yeah. And I guess my, that leads to a question about how you as a, as a white woman at the time began to understand your whiteness. Like, what was that education like for you? Because you, I mean, you were on the front lines, right? Um, I think that, I mean, this is a, a really interesting question for me. Because I think that we were very unreflective in those days around issues of whiteness, but other issues as well in terms of our internal attitudes towards difference. Um, and I think that's because we saw ourselves primarily as activists. And I'm not talking about myself in the Institute of Race Relations now, I'm talking about myself as, a, as, as somebody who was active in anti-racist and anti-fascist struggles. So it was a time of great activism so you would literally be going from sort of demonstration to demonstration, from pickets to, to pickets. Um, I mentioned the ca uh, case of Newham 8, uh, the young Asian school children arrested. Um, I mean, there was a non um, during the, tri the trial, there was non-stop pickets outside the Old Bailey. So we had very, very little time to be reflective about ourselves um, as people in one way, but in another way, I think we were reflective or, or you know, you've asked me a personal question as me as a, as a white woman. I think there were certain things that you knew and you learned in the hard school of struggle. First of all, you knew, I mean, it was a time of sort of black politics, um, uh, a time of, um, you know, black consciousness, you know, there was, you know, always, there's always been in the UK the link to the US, um, black power, civil rights, there was also the whole links to uh, South Africa, as it was then, the anti-apartheid struggle, the black consciousness movement uh, in South Africa. So you would know as a white person that it was not your place to misplace yourself in someone else's struggle. Just because it was you were an anti-racist, that didn't put you in any sort of leadership problem uh, position. So you kind of knew that, I think, organically through your human relations and, and your work with, with Black Caribbean Asian people who you were fighting alongside. So I think there was something um, sort of deep as well about that. Um, you also kind of had a horror around careerism. You know, as an anti-racist, it was your role 
uh, and as a white anti-racist, it was your role to service, not to lead, as I've said, but it was also your role to, um, you know, maybe put your body on the lo your line and not pursue a career around anti-racism. So I think that was sort of one of the, the fundamental differences. You know, looking back now and looking at the discussions that happened today, I think what uh, I value about the discussions today is that, you know, as I said at the start, people are more reflective about their behaviour as an individual. And I think that's a really, really good thing. I would say that we were, we were very imperfect people, as we are always imperfect people, as I'm fond of telling people, there are no monsters and there are no angels. We are all imperfect people. But at the same time, I think, you know, there was a lot of bad behaviour in the movements um, on an interpersonal level. And I think I value that, 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 you know, young people today, I see some, you know, amazing young people who are actually brilliant and totally committed activists, but at the same time, much more sort of caring and reflective about their, the way that they behave in interpersonal relations. However, I think sometimes there can be uh, an imbalance that comes with that, which I've also perceived in the sense that, um, what starts out as a caring, um, reflective thing, if it is translated almost into uh, a dogma, it can become very purist and it can lose its spontaneity. And paradoxically, you can almost become the thing that you're fighting at, where you can become very, very judgmental, um, about other people rather than reflective about yourself and i have a horror of judgmentalism um because i think we are all imperfect people and if we start judging other people and and um you know cancelling them or whatever you want then then in a sense we are um we are unlearning the lessons of reflection it's a really interesting point. I think I've learned that I that the the amount of compassion that we're able to show other people or patience or understanding or empathy, I think is indicative of, of how much compassion, understanding and empathy we show ourselves. Like other people, I think, act as a how we treat other people as a mirror, I think, to how we think about ourselves. I suppose I, I think perhaps I do see it the same way, but I would um, perhaps use different words. So I would say it's the amount of self-knowledge we have about ourselves because um, we can have compassion towards ourselves, but then, again, if it's, if it's a compassion that isn't um, disciplined, com your compassion must be disciplined, uh, you can then sort of start you know, feeling sorry for yourself and all these things. But we, you know, I'm not going to talk about Sir Sivanandan's uh, legacy and in terms of me, I think that's something I'll come, come, come back to again, because we also have to be hard on ourselves because there's no easy route to self-knowledge. 
You were mentored by the late Asa Vinandan, um, widely regarded as one of the leading black political thinkers in the UK. Um, if you can put it into words, how would you describe his impact on you? Siva was uh, an incredible educator, an incredible teacher. Uh, so his impact on me was, you know, phenomenal. Uh, in terms of, you know, writing, uh, I mean, let's sort of separate the things personal, you know, the skill set that he's given me, the tools he's given me. He, he was uh, a fantastic teacher. I mean, you don't know when sometimes, you know, we, had, we were involved in an anti-racist magazine called Calf at the time. And uh, it, was, uh, well, it was a bit later. But I remember that when I had to write the editorial, he, I would write a draft of the editorial and he would sit down with me maybe for two hours on a, on a you know, 800 word <laughs> editorial going through it word by word and teaching me about language and how to use language. And um, I wasn't a very educated person in, in the sense that I always like this quote from Oscar Wilde where it said something like, to words to the effect that education is a very useful thing, but it's worth remembering that nothing that's worth learning can be taught. So I kind of, you know, I didn't concentrate at school. I didn't really concentrate at university. So I didn't actually have good language skills when I came to the Institute. So he gave me all of that. And on the personal level, um, he made me a much stronger person. I didn't have a huge amount of self-worth. I had a lot of self-pity, going back to, to that thing. And you know, he was bloody difficult, sorry to swear on your program. I mean, it was impossible. He didn't give you any peace. I mean, literally, if you were um, feeling sorry for yourself, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have that, you know. He wouldn't have that. He'd say, okay, that's fine. Have a good cry. Now you've had a good cry. Pick yourself up. So I would say that any resilience I have as a character is down to him, really. So brilliant teacher, uh, difficult man, uh, and but a person who would not separate the per the he wouldn't he, he he really believed in human relations above everything else. He believed in human relations actually. Um, so he gave so many people so much. And um, I think that's that scene now in, in the, the warmth uh, in which he is remembered. My first encounter with your work was Fault Lines um, in 2018. And I was electrified. Um, and I know that's kind of a weird thing to say about work that's so serious. Um, but anytime I encounter a piece of work that is accessible and that helps me understand the world as it's happening around me, I feel energized by it. And so I know I've thanked you kind of a hundred times for <laughs> um, fault lines in our pre-chat, but I really am so grateful that you, that you put that, that you did that work and that you put it out there in a way that so many of us could access and understand. Well, thank you very much for that, Josh. And I'm really, um, I'm really pleased that you said that you feel energised because you're one of the first people who've said something like that. I think I've been accused of um, uh, giving people sleep, sleepless nights. <laughs> and a lot of people say that it's, it's kind of, oh God, it's, it's sort of like a, horror, it's like a horror story. And that was never my intention. My intention was always to, to, to energise people by 
kind of almost like sort of breaking breaking things down. And I think the thing is, you know, we were talking about Simonandan, but I think again, in the way that um, hopefully, in the way that I write, there is also the method that we all learn at the Institute because we all start from the empirical. So I think you, you tend to find in a lot of sort of academic writing that people are starting from theory and then they often take the empirical facts as a way of sort of proving their their theory is right, if you like. Whereas I think that we're we're trying to to build on empirical information. We're trying to say, look, here are all the things that are happening uh, around Europe. What do they show us? And that's what I try to do. Uh, what I try to do in in in, in Europe's fault lines. So you know, Siva always used to say in terms of activism. You know, we've got to turn cases into issues, issues into causes, causes into national campaigns. And I suppose the same impetus um, follows us in the way that, that we write. I also always think of myself as, um, as somebody who writes. I don't, you know, I said I haven't got a particular academic background. I've got a first degree at Middlesex Poly. So, but, you know, my, uh, my grandmother was a dressmaker. And I always feel a kind of affinity to her um, when I, or, or her profession as a dressmaker when I write, I, I'm writing. It always feels to me that I'm taking bit, different bits of cloth and stitching them together. And I, what I will say about the book as well is that um, it was my first engagement to, it was my first prompting to really actually think critically about the European Union. You know, I was one of the Remain voters who... Um, who had never really questioned the European Union. I was like, well, it's just a, it's just good. Um, and I think one of the things that comes out in your research um, is that the EU is not really well equipped um, to stem the rise of the right um, among its member states. And can you speak more on that? I felt like I just said it very clunkily. <laughs> not at all. Um, I'll try and answer that question, but I think just to go back to, you know, your personal uh, story there, that you're a Remain voter um, who who hadn't sort of, you know, necessarily been armed with, the, with the, the facts that allowed you to think critically about the EU. That's one of the things that I found frustrating in the whole debate uh, around uh, Brexit, because, you know, I was a Remain voter as well passionately wanted us to stay in Europe but at the same time as somebody who knew that you know the EU is a bit of a monster actually um, so this was one of the contradictions and uh, and particularly around you know those of us in, who'd been very involved in migrant rights and refugee issues you know here was us saying that we've got to stay in Europe knowing full well that the EU's immigration and refugee policies, which are top-down. They're not all the member states' sort of brutalities and each member state putting up walls, building walls or deporting refugees, sending them back to torture. This is something that is harmonised at the EU level. And here was us saying that, you know, this is a disaster to leave Europe in terms of our anti-racist struggles. So it was very, very contradictory. Which they... Well, and one of the, th sorry to interrupt, but like one of those things that, I, that as, uh, I was thinking about this morning in preparation for this conversation was that this desire to, uh, what we're seeing now is that we have, a, as the UK, and 
ideologically, right? We have a lot, the, I say we, the collective we, but our nation has a lot in common with the kind of ideology that is so prevalent across Europe, right? So this idea that we might, um, is, is it a paradox that a nation of racists wanted to get away from another nation of racists, right? Like another organizing body of racists. I thought about that this morning, but maybe that's a bit harsh. That's a good question. And I think the only way I can answer it is to say that if we're looking at Europe as a kind of federation of different member states, and each of those member states have a particular racist history, although you know racism tends to stay stem from the same roots, there are variations. So within each European country, there is um, there was a process of sort of national formation or national identity formation, where each country valorized their national tradition and you know buried their faults under it. So you know Britain, British exceptionalism, you know the Ireland story, pluckying, plucky, you know Britain. We fought the fascists. We won the Second World War. You know, we have ex cradle of democracy, we have exceptional, exceptional values. So, you know, this whole island story is intimately uh, uh, linked to our colonial history. And our idea that we were a great colonial power and we can go back to that as long as we ditch this European Union with their sort of fancy cosmopolitan ideas because I think the idea is, you know, with a lot of the um, the ideology around uh, leaving was uh, that we have more in common with the US, with Australia, not the Aborigines, of course, white Australia, Canada, the former Commonwealth. We just need to resurrect uh, a different trading block. So, you know, um, so I think that that is partly the answer to your question. Uh, but I guess what the the US, the UK, Australia and Canada all really have in common is like this battle for whiteness, right? Or this battle to reinforce or reify its whiteness. I always think there is like economics underneath it as well. Um, and that's why the times are so difficult for us to uh, navigate through, because on the one hand, it seems like what we're seeing is a resurgence of nationalism and how that nationalism is, as you say quite correctly, linked to whiteness and white supremacy. But at the same time, personally, I don't think that this is a period of nationalism. This is a period of globalization. Uh, this is a period of global elites creating linkages across the world with different global elites. So I think what we're seeing on the level of economics is various power struggles between different trading blocks to dominate the economic project of globalization. So I think the UK at the same time as, I mean, I don't for one moment doubt that people like Nigel Farage etc etc i don't for one moment doubt that they are um 
believe their lies, their myths about the great British colonial exceptionalism. But at the same time, they are Trojan horses battering down various economic partnerships to form new blocks. So if we're looking around the world, you see the EU, at the bottom line, the EU is a trading block. It's a very, very powerful trading block. Hence, the United States under Trump is in a sense at the war with EU. You know, whereas, you know, in the past under previous leaders, the EU would have seen as a partner in maintaining US uh, hegemony around the world. So, so basically what I see with, with, with Brexit is also an economic project which has the belief that a, a new trading block of global elites will be better powered to deliver, um, you know, deliver the future of, you know, the 1% who are, who are, are, are ravaging, who are, are, are exploiting the world's resources and, and going around. So they, they want to, you know, they want to ditch the EU because they think they're better served by a different trading bloc. And actually, even if you look at a lot of the far right in Europe, uh, you look at Marine Le Pen, you look at um, Alternative for Germany, you look at the League in Italy, you look at how they are also anti-VEU and they have very, very close ties with, with Russia uh, and other sort of much more sort of authoritarian regimes. Not to say that I don't think in many parts of Europe we are, you know, we're moving well away from sort of democ de democracy democracy towards authoritarian regimes. So I think people are looking for new poles of globalization and the EU is also rightly or wrongly associated by the far right with cosmopolitanism, with multiculturalism, with a, you know, I'm not saying that the EU is cosmopolitan and multinational, but you know, superficially, superficially on the terms of narrative, you know, therefore women, therefore gay rights, therefore, you know, um, racial equality. It's very, very superficial. And they use that narrative as part of their, um, as part of their brand, if you like, which is what the far right, what Trumpism, what Farageism, what Johnson is all fighting. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And do you think that people see themselves connected, right? Do you, do you, that's a really vague question, but I, I, I guess I mean these kind of um, far right, right wing movements. Do they see themselves as connected to other movements? Do they see themselves in line with Trumpism, the League, Viktor Orban, Nigel Farage? Is there an understanding that they are working towards a common goal? Definitely, yes, definitely there is an understanding that they're working towards um, a common goal. And I would say that um, it's not just an understanding, it's a it's something that's stitched together in their DNA in the practical ways that they they network and they they organize. I mean you even have to look at I mean, it's it's, it's uh, 
Oh, there is such a thing as poetic justice with the arrest of Steve Bannon. I'm, I'm a great believer in poetic justice, by the way. What comes around, goes around, what goes around, comes around, whichever way it is. Um, so, you know, if you look at something like the Bannon Project, Breitbart News, um, you can, you know, you can go and do a discourse analysis around all that and you can, you can, you can see the links there. They are... The far right in Europe are being used as a Trojan horse against the EU uh, because it's in many people's interest to see the breakup of the European Union as a trading bloc, as a powerful trading bloc. Um, we're obviously still in the throes of COVID-19. Um, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw has spoken at length and often about the outsized impact of the virus on already marginalized communities because the virus is able to take advantage of existing vulnerabilities. Do you see a connection between the rise of the right across Europe and the ways in which member states have responded to the crisis? Yes. So at the center of the far right project has been a, a cultural war, uh, an attempt to reverse all the gains that have been made since the 1980s, which is where I started with my tired deja vu heart, to reverse all the gains that have been made in the field of race, or, you know, just looking at race, you know, race relations, or racial justice, or laws to protect people against discrimination. The Far Right Project has always been about dismantling all those laws, because they would argue there is no such thing as racism. So they're structural deniers of racism. At the same time, our national elites are also, with, you know, of centre-right or centre-left persuasion, have also systematically denied structural racism. So this is what we've seen with COVID-19 and their health inequalities. You know, the, the excess deaths in... Uh, black and minority ethnic communities in the UK, very similar to the US. You know, the excess deaths were being explained by, you know, people in public health England, which are a part of the state, you know, NHS is also part of the state, in terms of sort of comorbidities, you know, uh, genetic factors, vitamin D efficiencies, when it was actually throwing a mirror on the incredible health injustices in this country the fact that um you know black communities black caribbean communities filipino community filipino community has suffered uh, disproportionately other communities are in the worst paid jobs in public uh, servicing roles in the nhs in etc etc and were more exposed to risk than other communities. And we're also living uh, in poverty without access to health, all those things. So here I do see a connection, uh, but I also see a connection in what we've seen in terms of the policing of uh, COVID. And, um, you know, today we're speaking at an incredibly sad moment. We've seen, I, I haven't had fully the time to, to catch up on all my empirical information. And, you know, like I tell you, we always stop from the empirical at the Institute. But, you know, what's happened at the Moria refugee camp in Lesbos? 
where a camp made for 3,000 people was, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people were living in it, it burnt down two nights ago. You know, I think, is it 14,000 people left homeless? I mean, before they were just living in tents. But that camp had actually been put under almost like militarized quarantine. So what we've seen around Europe with COVID, um, which is a gift to the far right, is that the um, kind of public health, public health model for fighting COVID has meant the stigmatization of migrant and refugee communities and the Roma who have been forced into a kind of militarized quarantine where, you know, whole camps, they're not allowed to leave, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we also have, in terms of the policing uh, in multicultural working class neighborhoods around Europe, um, particularly neighborhoods that are seen as black neighborhoods or immigrant neighborhoods, whereas, you know, in countries like Netherlands, France, Belgium, you know, we're talking about second and third generation youth, you've seen um, the police use COVID as an excuse to really enforce a colonial style of policing in those neighbourhoods. So we've seen in the UK, uh, there were figures that came out a while ago that showed that in April 2020, there was massive, massive more stop and search than that was in April 2019, which means at the height of the lockdown, the police were going into, you know, neighbourhoods mostly of black, young working class kids and uh, over-policing and swamping those areas. Yeah, was it Cressida Dick who said that some was respond had to res, was forced to respond to some statistic like ninety two percent of stop and searches were of black youth, black people. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What you know, what is going on? All that is going on is they have used the uh, COVID and they've used the public health model to involve enforce a colonial style of policing in black neighbourhoods. That's not just in the UK. It's in Belgium, uh, in Sweden, where there were disturbances recently, uh, in France, where, you know, there's been, you know, so whole history of colonial style policing. And on top of that, you can see the economic injustice as well, because we're starting to look at fig figures on fines and fees for, you know, fines under COVID legislation, public health legislation. And we're seeing that, again, it's, it's people in black neighbourhoods, in, in immigrant neighbourhoods, in Roma neighbourhoods, who've been subjected to more of these public health fines. So, you know, so basically, uh, sort of cut it short, uh, I think we're seeing a disastrous situation, especially in this year, country, where the public health model has unleashed all the racist, uh, you know, evidence of, of racism and institutional racism in the police. Again, going back to the original question, uh, you know, a gift to the far right. And, you know, this is in Europe's fault lines, and it's one of the things that I very, feel very, very strong about, but we haven't paid enough attention uh, in Europe to the collusion that is existing between the far right and the police. And that collusion can be overt or covert. It can be as in France, in uh, areas like Calais, where uh, far right vigilante squads 
are almost um, smiled upon by the police and it could be around far-right infiltration of the police so that we have um, you know we have far-right neo-nazis uh, in our police force again very similar patterns to this, the united states i'm reading your work in alongside that of um, professor fatima el tayeb and um and i hadn't realized how much of an organizing ideology islamophobia had become across europe yeah i think that part of the reason why the linkages um haven't been so clear in terms of Islamophobia as an organizing principle is the way that we can understand Islamophobia as a prejudice, uh, as a, you know, as a, as a phobia against a religion. Um, whereas what I tried to do in Europe's fault line was look at the interconnections between Islamophobia and structured racism because I sort of distinguish, if you like, between Islamophobia and structured anti-Muslim racism. And whereas I would say that Islamophobia is a pool of ideas, it's a way of looking at Islam as a religion or as Muslims, uh, it, Muslims in Europe as an extension of an alien religion, if you like. What I concentrated on, the where, what happens when those ideas travel into the law and into the structures. So um, I've looked at the whole question of uh, the anti-terrorist laws being uh, in Europe, being built on uh, Islamophobia in the sense that what we've seen is the creation of a separate criminal justice system for Muslims beyond the ordinary rule of law with greater punishments and greater penalties, and then looked at the whole question of anti-Muslim uh, anti racism in counter-extremism policies. You know, um, nowadays, counter-extremism does include the far right, but that's relatively recent. EU counter-extremism policies, member state policies, were all aimed at, you know, young Muslim men in very, very prejudiced ways so i think islamophobia has been very very uh important in terms of understanding it in terms of understanding the structural racism in our societies but at the same time i think what i've always tried to do is always show the parallels because in a in a sense in the first book i wrote um, called a suitable enemy i was looking at what I called xeno-racism, which was racism, structured racism against foreigners. Not a phobia, not a prejudice, but a structured racism. And I looked at how xeno-racism uh, towards migrants and refugees, which isn't always based on, on, on colour, it's based on their foreigners. So you could have a racism towards refugees from the former Yugoslavia, for instance. But that xeno-racism was also a structured racism because it led to the creation of a separate welfare system where migrants and refugees had less rights within the welfare system. But to sort of finalise this, what I'm increasingly interested in or increasingly motivated to try and 
help people, um, assist people on, is the development of an anti-racism that inadvertently doesn't disappear one community's experience by uh, uh, viewing another's, if you like. And I felt, you know, I felt, you know, being reflective, looking back, you know, even after the last five years, I mean, I'm looking at our programme at the Institute of Race Relations, where we've opened up much more work around the experience of young black working class people in particular, or black neighbourhoods, from the experience of gentrification, and also the policing that arises from that, and also looking at serious youth violence and knife crime, that we were looking very, very much around issues of anti-Muslim racism, but in so doing, did we take our eye off the ball of the whole anti-black racism in this country, which has become visible now because of Black Lives Matter, where at last we're having a discussion around the phenomenal deaths in custody of black people that happen in this country. But at the same time, we mustn't disappear other people's experience. And, you know, this is very much uh, a moment around gypsy and traveller experience, who, you know, the gypsy and traveller communities, the Roma community have also suffered very much from authoritarian COVID-19 policing. Migrants and refugees do. So we mustn't disappear one experience at the same time. How do we do that? It reminds me of, um, I'm thinking now of Audre Lorde, who I've got right here. Um, I do not need you to be me to see that our, our struggles are connected, right? That we're fighting the same enemy. And again, uh, Malcolm X, uh, from a speech he gave in 1964, that it's about us recognizing that we have a common enemy, a common oppressor. And as soon as we can organize against that common oppressor, um, we'll get ahead. But that's, uh, to, you know, to your point about heart deja vu, um, that conversation, you know, that statement that Malcolm X made in 1964, it very much applies now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's really, really difficult because I think that you know, the, the struggle against racism is, uh, is a struggle against a racism that is universal, that has a, you know, a, a, a root in, in the, um, in the stigmatization and the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, you know, the monstering you know, saying that there are no monsters, you know, like particular communities are monstered and stigmatized. It's always the same, you know, that within Islamophobia, you know, there are so many parallels between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, alien religions, um, powerful minorities out to overawe and dominate, all those things. There's a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of particularities. So how do you create a universal anti-racism? And in the past, we've seen what universalism has, has been. Universalism has been white. If we look at, you know, we only have to look at enlightenment racism. We only have to look at, uh, you know, you know, uh, we talked about, you know, narratives of national identity. France is the, you know, it's the epitome of this. Oh, we are the cradle of the enlightenment, you know, and we've given all these enlightenment values, but... You know, as Sivan Anton said, it, it, you know, enlightenment never, 
never belonged to the lesser pe people. The colonial powers always operated with force and authoritarianism and brutalities in the in, in the colonies during the so-called enlightenment. So, you know, we've known that universalism as it has passed been um, used by um, the European project has been a white project, if you like. So how do we create a universalism out of anti-racism that, that, that centers anti-racism but, but centers a unified struggle against all forms of racism without losing the particularities of that. In thinking about solidarity, what does solidarity mean to you and what does it look like? How do, how do you think one practices or demonstrates solidarity based on all your experience? I think we touched on this, or I think you touched on it, Josh, which is that solidarity means also turning up in places where you're not expected to turn up. So to do that, you have to have empathy. We all start from our identity. It's inevitable as people, we are, we live in a body, you know, and we have individual experiences and, but we have to go beyond um, our identity or the injustices that we feel um, as a, as a, you know, take me as an example. I never really felt I'm a woman, I'm a woman, but I never really felt, I felt more engaged with the anti-racist struggle than the struggle for feminism. Not to say that's not important, but if feminists come to the anti-racist movement, if, um, uh, if black queer people join the fight of migrants and refugees, which they do. If we're all seen in places where we're not expected to be seen, that sends a powerful message and that is also solidarity. So solidarity goes beyond me to the other. Secondly, I think on a kind of maybe sort of a symbolic level, how do I see solidarity? In a way, I visualize it both as a cradle, as about tending and nurturing, but also as a fist. Um, it has to be a fist. Solidarity has to be organization. And I feel that we're kind of almost living in a cusp where we're not quite sure what our organizational model is. In the course of the 1980s, in the course of political blackness, I think a concept of the front line emerged. I learned a lot about this from Stafford Scott, who was the founder of the Broadwater Farm Youth Association in Tottenham in the 1980s, before the uprisings, massive uprisings, Josh. You should have been there. It was a, it was a powerful time. Um, but, you know, the concept of the front line, I think, is important, but, you know, and this also informs my thinking as the director of the Institute of Race Relations, which is an educational charity, which is an NGO. And, you know, a lot of NGOs and charities get bought up because they don't see that their role is a frontline organisation. They're there. They've got a particular authority. They've got space. So their job as a frontline organisation is to stand there 
as a force to protect the vulnerable and marginalized people behind you so that the you know the the bricks and the brutality that the state is always throwing doesn't hit them you're on the front line you protect people um but a lot of organizations instead of staying true to that principle of frontline organizing become buffer organizations which means that the state use them to pass their message back to the vulnerable and the marginalized so that's why i say that that solidarity has to start from the perspective of the most marginalized and the most vulnerable it's about being a, a you know a, a force to protect them and that's what i think the challenge to our organizational model is because even though these amazing things are happening at the moment which again again makes me feel that we're returning to the 1980s because we're returning to the 1980s into the terms of activism unless we have a concept of the front line the danger is that our activism becomes all about the narrative. It becomes very individualistic. It becomes, you know, people putting themselves forward as talking heads in the media. Is my view important? My view is only important in the sense that I am trying to represent the views of the people who don't get into that position. So I'm sorry, I feel that I've kind of gone the long way from your question, but that for me... No, it's brilliant. Looks right. Because what you're also demonstrating is that um, self-reflexiveness that you, that you spoke about earlier, right? That this, this idea that I love this idea of the cradle and the fist. I think that's a beautiful way to think about solidarity, at privilege, positionality, frontline work, as you've said. I, that's, a, that's really lit me up, the cradle and the fist. It's and thank you, Josh, because that, that's also very important what, what you've just said, because I think it broadens our understanding of privilege doesn't it? Because, you know, of course, there is such a thing as white privilege, but there is also sort of class privilege, there's economic privilege, there's the privilege of having a secure position in society from which to speak, and an insecure position from society in which to speak. And funnily enough, that's one of the things that when I used to go into Europe, um, you know, in the 1980s to different sort of anti-racist projects in Europe, it was always very interesting because you'd have a lot of sort of white left people being very arrogant, as we know, it's, uh, it tends to happen on the white left because, you know, they have had the class experience, therefore they're going to tell us what is true. But they would always sort of say, well, you know, in the UK, you've had a you know, black working class militant struggle, but our minorities haven't done this. But, you know, in Germany, people were guest workers. They did not have secure immigration status. So the Turkish German community, they didn't have rights to organize uh, in trade unions. They did not have a secure position from which to campaign for their rights. In the UK, at least the Black Caribbean and the Black Asia, or the Asia, sorry, I'm thinking political black here. The, the Asian communities who came, because they came from the mother country, they had citizenship status. Citizens, you know, the demarcation of our society between citizens and non-citizens is also linked to our privilege, our privilege to speak or our, our inability to speak. Yeah, wow. 
To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I hope that the Black Lives Matter movement grows and flourishes and because it has the enormous potential to create a new universal anti-racism. And I think that if that happens, we will get to a point where we will be able to have a much better discussion around racial justice in which our relations between us, you know, like increase, I sound like an awful liberal, increasingly as I get older, I'm concerned about the human condition as a whole, all of us as human beings. And I think the Black Lives Matter can create an environment where all of us as human beings can engage in a much more honest and open discussion about racism. And that's what I hope for. Liz, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel really honored that you'd have this conversation with me and that you'd share so much of your wisdom, your knowledge, your thinking, your life experience. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful to you. And thank you, Josh, and really good luck with everything. <laughs> thank thank you. you for your penetrating questions, which <laughs> makes life so difficult for me. <laughs> Liz Vichetti is the director of the Institute of Race Relations and head of its European research program. She is the author of two books, A Suitable Enemy, Racism, Migration, and Islamophobia in Europe, and Europe's Fault Lines, Racism and the Rise of the Right. Liz was part of the CARF Collective and an expert witness at the Basso Permanent People's Tribunal on Asylum and the World Tribunal on Iraq. She is currently an associate of the International State Crime Initiative at Queen Mary University of London and the Border Crossing Observatory at Monash University, Australia. You'll find more links to her work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, and Schools Out. And thank you to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, ratings, shares, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.